listening to Vet Candy. Those particular case, I think we caught it fairly early. Blastomycosis can cause draining skin lesions, and Bo didn't have any of those. It can cause bone lesions where they're they're limping. Bo didn't have any of those. Uh, it can cause uh, severe coughing as it affects the lungs. Uh, he wasn't coughing, and he was he was still eating. He wasn't anorexic. Um, so I said, "Hey, look, I think we caught it in a good enough time." And we had already started Bo on some topical treatments for the eye. Welcome to the Vet Mysteries Podcast. My name is Dr. Courtney. I'm a board-certified veterinary surgeon and fiercely devoted to pet and animal health. This podcast is powered by Vet Candy, a multimedia platform offering diverse veterinary content produced by veterinary experts and key opinion leaders. In this podcast, we unravel some of the most baffling and fascinating cases in clinical veterinary medicine. Please let us know how you feel about these cases. You can find us on socials at Dr. Courtney DVM and at MyVetCandy. Now, let's get started. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Introducing NextGuard Plus, a Foxalaner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. Every one and done monthly dose protects canine patients against heartworm disease, fleas, ticks, roundworms, and hookworms, all in a delicious beef-flavored soft chew. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurologic disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. To learn more, visit NextGuardPlusClinic.com. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a really tremendous guest for this episode. Sometimes I like to say we have very distinguished guests. And I got to be honest, this guest today embodies all of those and more. There is not an ophthalmologist that I would want to talk to more than the guest that we have right now. This is going to be an awesome episode. I can just feel it. I can feel it in my core, or I should say in my corneas. Okay, <laughs> this is going to be a great episode. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Hoistler. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I appreciate the honor and, and the powerful words that, that you said, Dr. Campbell. Great to be here. You know, I've been telling people about this potential for us to have a conversation all week. Dr. DJ Hoistler, ophthalmologist. This is really great to have you. And I'm really interested in, in diving into a, a super mysterious case, something that's going to keep us intrigued and, and hold our attention. But before I do that, this journey of, of specialization and becoming an ophthalmologist, this is tremendous. I would love for you to kind of set the scene for us, for the young Dr. Hoistler. What was it like where you grew up? Uh, sure. So I grew up in a suburb of uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, classic Midwest town, um, big Bengals and, and Reds fan. And um, I got into veterinary medicine at a very, very early age. My dad was a veterinarian. And so I got in early and every discussion over dinner, you know, at the dinner table was vet medicine. And so I jokingly, but it's truthfully like to say, uh, I, I didn't know any different. I, I grew up in this and I knew exactly what to expect out of vet medicine. So I felt like I went into this profession with my eyes wide open. That's kind of how, how I got started. I got started, I think my first vet job was cleaning kennels on the weekend. At 11 years old, I rode my bike to the office and would uh, clean kennels for a few hours on the weekends. 
11 years old, you're in, in a vet clinic. Your dad was a veterinarian. And what type of veterinarian was your dad? A small animal general practice. It was very early in life from watching your dad that you realized veterinarians work really hard. Yeah, they work really hard and, you know, no one else would hire an 11 year old. So it was easy to make a couple bucks if, you know, you pick up a hose and, and start spraying, you know, and clean them up. Absolutely, man. I definitely think that there's some child labor laws against 11 year old. I, when I had my first veterinary job, they didn't even have a position for me. And they said, oh, you want to work with animals? You want to work in veterinary medicine? Fine. They gave me a chair and they put me right in front of the microscope. And I read every fecal that came through that door for months before I was actually able to touch an animal. So that is tremendous. Yeah, if you want to be good, you got to start with poop. It seems like a universality throughout all of veterinary medicine. Just got to start with poop. It's really interesting because you start there, the foundations of veterinary medicine at its core, really strong. But you took it a step further. Why specialization? And more importantly, or more specifically, why ophthalmology? I really wanted to dive deeper into science about things is kind of the direction that I wanted to go. And I really wanted to be a surgeon, to be honest with you. I, I followed a, a surgeon around when I was in high school and undergrad. I would uh, go into his office and, and talk with him. He was down in um, Norwood, Ohio, which is right outside Cincinnati. And I'd spend hours there just watching him do surgery and just talking, you know, just getting to know him and seeing what he was doing and, and seeing if it was for me. And and I really wanted to go in that direction. When I got into like the vet school sort of time frame, late undergrad, I got into photography and people were telling me, you know, ophthalmology is really photo friendly and, and the eye is very much like a camera. And then people started to tell me like, if you're, if you're an ophthalmologist, you don't necessarily have to work that hard. You can work like four days a week. You can, you know, go in late and leave early. Uh, which I've found to be not true at all. For me personally, I'm a workaholic, so I work all the time and I enjoy it. I didn't feel like I could manage the whole body of anatomy like you can, Dr. Campbell. I, I can manage a one-inch structure and that's what I'm good for. Yeah, I, sometimes I wonder if I could manage the whole body, but no, in, in all seriousness, it is tremendously challenging to try to think about things from a, a full body perspective, but the reality is the eye is so complex. It's as complex as literally the entire body. And so when you're thinking about, all right, I want to jump into ophthalmology and you originally wanted to be a surgeon, right? And so you're thinking to yourself, if I jump into ophthalmology and I'm working this hard, you and I were talking offline. Ophthalmologists are the kings and queens of multitasking. What is it like as a clinician on a daily basis as an ophthalmologist. You and I were talking offline about how many rooms you actually have going all at the same time. And that actually brings up a point, another reason as to why I really enjoyed getting into ophthalmology is I really wanted to do medicine and surgery both. I also wanted to work on a lot of different species. I get the opportunity to look at all kinds of things that I never imagined my career would, would lead me to. And I also get to form real long-term relationships with people, which kind of takes me back to my general practice roots. I see these clients for years on end. In fact, I just saw a patient of mine just passed away this weekend, and oh. I did cataract surgery on this dog eight years ago. I mean, eight years on a relationship. That was, it was fantastic. I knew these people you know, really well, and this dog really well. 
we typically do have a lot of rooms going. I'm a big fan of empowering my staff as well and to give them more things to do. And I like challenging people. I realize that I work with some very, very intelligent people as my technical staff, and I like to see what they can handle. And they help me with a lot of rooms. They do the initial diagnostics like tear testing and corneal staining and pressure for glaucoma testing, and then um, history taking. And once they get all that kind of wrapped up and start the paperwork, then I come in and examine the animal and do my aspect. But eyes really can't wait too often. You know, I had a call last night at 8.30 and um, sounded like it needed to be seen first thing. See him, I've already seen him this morning and um, we're going to get him into surgery by lunchtime. So uh, we have to be efficient and multitasking to get these things done, at least in my sector of this career. If you don't mind, I'd love to just back up just the one half step. I realized while you were talking, I was like riveted in what you were saying. I said to myself, there might be some, just a few, who actually don't know what a board certified ophthalmologist is and why they're needed. If we could just take just a half step back from how busy you are and the empathy that you have for each of your patients, particularly that one that was eight years after cataract surgery, Help us out for the uninitiated. What is a board-certified ophthalmologist, and why do you need one? Why would a family need one? Sure. So uh, my educational career basically went, I obviously graduated high school. I did four years of undergraduate work at Ohio State University. I got a bachelor's degree in animal science. I then completed four years of veterinary college at Ohio State University as well. Then I went to New Jersey for two years. I did two years of internships. Uh, one was a rotating internship where you follow other specialists around and they mentor you and show you the ropes as to what they do. So surgery, neurology, internal medicine, dermatology, ophthalmology, cardiology, oncology, all the different specialties. And then I stayed on for an additional year as a medicine and emergency critical care intern. So I did two internships. The second internship is not required to obtain a residency, but in my career, it's pretty common in my path. Then I went back to Ohio State. I did three years of just learning ophthalmology cases, uh, as well as obtaining a uh, master's degree in, in clinical sciences as well. So you just work with board certified ophthalmologists, just learning eyeballs day in and day out for three years straight. And when they sign off on you after three years to say you're competent to sit for your examination, you sit for a test, which involves surgical portions where you have to prove that you can do a couple different surgeries accurately in front of a board of ophthalmologists. And you take a written examination as well as a image recognition examination. Uh, so currently there's four parts to passing, uh, passing those boards. And when you pass them, then you are allowed to call yourself a board certified ophthalmologist. Oh man, the journey is real. It is real, particularly that part where you said you're doing, you're performing surgery in front of other boarded ophthalmologists. What a nerve wracking experience, but it is tremendously important. That experience is just tremendously important to be the best so that you can provide pets the best care. And thank you for detailing that as you were talking and as you're navigating that journey and detailing your journey. I was just sitting here nervous thinking about the exams myself. I took myself back there and my stomach started clenching. I was like, oh boy, here we go. So all those feelings came back. Speaking of that feeling, that stomach clenching feeling, because this is a mystery podcast, would you mind telling us something kind of mysterious about yourself? Well, we kind of talked a little bit about this offline as well, is that it's always a mystery as to how a client will pronounce my last name. That certainly is a mystery and keeps me entertained. I've heard anything from Dr. Hustler, 
to Dr. Hoistler. Hausler is probably the most common one that I get. Paisler, I've heard that one. Somebody threw it back one time to the old Baywatch and called me Dr. Hasselhoff one time. The funniest one that I got is that a fellow veterinarian wrote in an email to a client, you need to go see Dr. What's-His-Name. A lot of times when people ask me, how do you pronounce your last name? I tell them it's Hoistler, but I really don't care how you say it. You know, I get called way worse than somebody mispronouncing my last name. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Introducing NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. Every one and done monthly dose protects canine patients against heartworm disease, fleas, ticks, roundworms, and hookworms, all in a delicious beef-flavored soft chew. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurologic disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. To learn more, visit NextGuardPlusClinic.com. Yeah, I hear you 100%. So you're at that level of comfort where if you see somebody you don't know, if somebody is introduced to you and they say your last name incorrectly, you just move on. You don't even bother correcting them. Doesn't matter. As long as you're not calling me something nasty, you can mispronounce my last name. I love it, Dr. Oisler. Okay, I'm gonna really work on it. Well, thank you so much for dealing detailing that. The reality is we're here today to talk about something super intriguing, super interesting. We're gonna roll through a really interesting case and help us out, set the scene. Take us back to the day where you met that patient. What was the name of the patient and do you have a signalman? I saw a eight-year-old male neutered uh, Labrador retriever, yellow Labrador retriever uh, named Bo. Bo was referred to me for squinting his left eye and potential vision loss. But squinting his left eye and potential vision loss. Now, what are the medical terms that you attach to those two clinical presentations? Because there is one thing I noticed in ophthalmology. There is a specificity in language. And when you are talking ophthalmologist to ophthalmologist, there's a fluency in that language that I truly think is beautiful. So when an animal comes in squinting hard and, and potential vision loss, what, what kind of terminology do you use? Yeah, we like our words. And you have to know both ends of it. You have to know the technical medical language so you can relay that to your general practice uh, veterinarians that refer to the case. But you also have to know the words that the clients use so that uh, you can not appear talking over their head or arrogant or anything like that. So squinting is the common word, you know, that, that we all use, clients use, doctors use it too. Um, blepharospasm is the technical word. You know, loss of vision is across the board. You know, you can use that if you want to be real technical and use the amaurosis as a word, meaning loss of vision for an unknown cause. So those would be the two technical words as, as we get started. Oh, interesting. So blepharospastic or blepharospasm and amaurosis are both of the words that you might find in a medical record. And if a client gets that and reads that at home, they're like, I have no idea. But essentially it just means your dog's squinting a lot and they don't really have a lot of vision right? Your dog doesn't have a vision. When that happens in a dog, right, there's all kinds of emergencies and this emotional cascade that the families go through because they love their species, different family member. What was it like talking with that family about their dog squinting and their dog's vision loss? Could you get a sort of a palpable feeling on where they were emotionally? 
you know, it can sometimes be difficult to be a specialist because you are walking into a room with a client that is very worried about a loved one and sometimes upset, sometimes angry, well, and they don't know me. you. They trust their veterinarian, and most of the time, since they're being referred, they are trusting their veterinarian's word that you're going to do right by this person. So I try to go in pretty friendly. I don't let anybody in my clinic wear a white coat. One, because it scares the animals. I don't like white coats. Uh, one, they make me hot anyway all day. But two, I think that for me personally, it comes in a little hot for some clients, uh, the white coat for me. So I wear scrubs all day. I wear red gym shoes. I like to come in a little bit laid back so that they know that I'm going to be right by them and I'm not going to you know, be overly aggressive or anything like that. So try to take it soft, hear them out, listen to what they have to say and what their concerns are then get started on your exam. For sure, and I do think that veterinarians, just generally speaking, have a much more personable guy next door, very on the floor with your pet kind of feeling that maybe not is shared in other allied health professions. So I completely agree with you. I'm the same exact way. And not to mention, sometimes lab coats are the most poorly laundered equipment that we have in the hospital. And so it can actually be a fulmite for infection. So you, you speak with that family and you're really relaxed with them. What was the first step that you took in terms of trying to unravel this mystery as to why this dog is blinking so hard and why there's vision loss? Yeah, so the first step when they come in is they'll see one of my technicians and one of my technicians will grab a history uh, figure out what's going on. My technicians, at least on the presentation of the animal, usually don't know if anything's serious. So they're automatically upbeat and friendly and, hey, how's it going and that kind of stuff. They'll do a, a tear test to examine for dry eye, uh, which is called a Shermer tear test. Uh, they'll do a corneal stain with what's called fluorescein, which can highlight corneal ulcers. And then they'll use what's called a tono pen to perform tonometry, which is testing the pressure for glaucoma. This is the equivalent of what we get the puff of air in our eye when we go get our eyes examined at our optometrist. And so as long as the pressures are normal and not high, then we will dilate the patient and have them sit in the lobby for about 20 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes. And then after they're dilated, the technician will come to me and tell me what the history is and what they found in terms of the tear testing, the staining, the pressures and the history. Uh, and then I'll go in and do my exam. And I typically will start with uh, what's called a slit lamp exam, which is basically the workhorse of ophthalmology. It allows us to look at all the different layers of the cornea, the eyelids, what's called the anterior chamber, which is the front of the eye in between the lens and the cornea, allows us to look at the iris as well and examine for any sort of inflammation in the eye. Incredible. What I love and I really enjoy about what you're saying is that all of these diagnostic tools are being employed immediately after seeing the patient, right? All of these diagnostic tools are being employed, are being deployed with your technician as soon as they walk through the door. And so it provides you that baseline, that baseline of eye health immediately. What's the Shermer? What's the fluorescein? What's the tone of pen? And then we just do a slip lamp, slip lamp exam. And that I think that provides for the eye, kind of like listening to the heart, listening to the lungs, what's the temperature pulse respiration of that eye, and it just gives you a nice baseline health of that eye. And as you're talking, I can tell that operation is extremely smooth. Would you agree with that? Yeah, we hope it is. We've got it down, I think, to a, to a fairly good science in terms of trying to be 
effective and respectful of clients' time. A lot of clients will drive quite a long ways to see us. Um, ophthalmologists aren't the most common specialists out there. I think there's a little bit shy of 500 in all of North America. You know, that we have clients that will drive two to three hours to see us, and we tell them you're going to be here for an hour, an hour and 15 minutes to get everything done. Um, so we try to make it smooth so as not to completely destroy their day. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Vet Candy makes learning fun with the most exciting experts on the planet. Become a Vet Candy member for exclusive access to our library of more than 100 studio qualities and race approved videos taped in 4K. Say hello to streaming and goodbye to boring webinars with us. Plus, members can connect with specialists and licensed mental health care experts on our forums and get answers to your burning questions with our knowledge database. You can even create a custom learning plan, keep track of your progress, and track your CE credits all in one spot. Your personalized learning journey starts with us. What are you waiting for? Sign up today at myvetcandy.com. Absolutely. Now, you definitely don't want to destroy their day. And so moving forward, you have your baseline. Are you finding anything interesting on your slip ramp exam or in any of those baseline diagnostic tests that you ran? So in this particular case with Bo, the tear testing was fine. Uh, normal is above 15 to 20. So I, we like them above 20 typically, and his were normal. Uh, we did not find any corneal stain uptake, so no corneal ulcers. And his pressures were on the lower side, but we would still consider them normal. So normal for a dog should be 25 or less. Uh, glaucoma is 26 or higher. Um, and in Bo's case, they were uh, seven and eight in the left eye. And so that can be normal in some dogs, or it could be an indicator of something else such as uveitis, which is inflammation of the inside of the eye. We look at those pressures and then now we're moving on to the slit lamp exam where we look for abnormalities. We did find some abnormalities in his left eye that indicated why he was squinting and he had some inflammation on the inside of his eye. He had what's called aqueous flare. Aqueous is the fluid on the inside of the eye in the anterior chamber. Imagine flare as if you're in a movie theater and you look up in between where the projector the light beam goes across and hits the screen, you'll see dust particles that are being highlighted by that light. And that's called the Tyndall effect. And that's how we determine what aqueous flare is. And zero is normal, meaning totally clear, we don't see anything, versus three plus, which is really, really foggy. And Bose was about at a two plus in that left eye. He had some little cataracts forming, didn't know if those were related to this inflammation or not just yet. But so far, that's what we're finding with him. So you're finding a foggy eye when you look inside, and he's also irritated. You mentioned that he potentially has a uveitis. Did you also mention that his conjunctiva was also inflamed, or did his conjunctiva, the pink part of the eye, did that look normal? So he was a little bit more conjunctiva on that left side. Didn't really see anything on the right side in terms of inflammation or conjunctivitis, but in the left eye, he did have a little bit. And he had a little bit of tearing, too, which also carries a another one of those ophthalmology words called epiphora. And so uh, he had a little bit of tearing out of that left eye. Interesting. Now, when vets are looking at that, there are a lot of them that are just scared out of their mind. 
They're just like, you know what? I don't even know what this is. I'm setting this up, ophthalmologist. I want to make my life a little bit easier. And then on the client side, people who are not necessarily familiar with canine ophthalmology may kind of relate back to themselves and say, oh, yeah, I've had red eye or pink eye when I've woken up in the morning. I get it where my eye hurts. I'm blinking a lot and my eyes really red. Take us into the mind of an ophthalmologist when you are seeing that sort of slightly increased inflammation of the conjunctiva, the epiphora, the aqueous flare. What's going through your head at that time? So at that point, you have at least one diagnosis or two if you consider the cataracts, but you, you have a diagnosis of uveitis. The next step is, do we have a cause? And as to what is causing this uveitis? And then lastly, of course, you're gonna look at what are your treatment options for this? Now we're halfway through our exam. So the next part of the examination is we do what's called indirect ophthalmoscopy, uh, which is where I have a, a head unit uh, and I use a, a lens and we put that in front of the dog's eye, the patient's eye, and that allows us to see to the back of the eye where the retina and the optic nerve is. In Bo's case, I couldn't see too well in the back of his left eye because of all the fogginess. His pupil was constricted on that eye due to the uveitis, that's a common finding. But in the right eye, uh, we were able to dilate him and I got a good look back there. And he had a partial retinal detachment, which would explain some of the uh, vision loss uh, that we're seeing. Because if you have a patient that loses vision in one eye, the client may not always notice vision loss uh, because the other eye then does all the work for the patient. But in Bo's case, he can't see too well out of the left eye from the cloudiness, from the inflammation. And now we have a partial retinal detachment in the right eye. And I'm also starting to see little circular, yellow, opaque lesions that are located in what's called the non-tapetum. That is a, an area at the bottom half of the eye, what's not the shiny part, it's a black part. It's real easy to see if there's whitish to yellow, what we call infiltrate in that area of the eye. This is getting incredibly intriguing. Things are shaking up to be really fascinating and kind of bewildering to somebody who may not necessarily know, okay, this is what this looks like. This is what this condition looks like. And so as you're moving through this, you're thinking, okay, yellow infiltrates, retinal detachment on the contralateral eye. At what point are you thinking, okay, we've got a problem here? Yeah, we've got a problem here. Oh, We're thinking it right now. So yeah, at this point now, we start talking to the client and you try to be gentle, but firm. And so you say, Bo has some serious concerns here. This is not something to take lightly. Um, this isn't something that we're just gonna throw antibiotics at it and see them in two weeks. You know, we, we need to impress upon the client that we need to dig deeper. This looks like something that may be affecting his overall health, if it's affecting both of his eyes. Start asking questions like, is he feeling well? Is his activity level normal? He's a Labrador, he's middle-aged. You know, these guys are typically pretty energetic. Um, how's he eating? Is he eating okay? Is he drinking okay? And you know, the client at this point starts to say, you know, he does seem a little off. He eats, but he's not as aggressive as he was three weeks ago, now that you mention it. So we say, okay, these are indicators as well that something is bothering him. Whenever we see something that systemically bothers a patient, we always start with blood work. Uh, number one is you go to a complete blood count or what we call a CBC or a biochemical profile. We recommend that to the client so that we can evaluate red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, liver values, kidney values, electrolytes, cholesterol, glucose levels, and get a baseline to see, is there anything that will point us in that direction or direction to look further?
Interesting. And this is essentially one of the hallmark and one of the very special aspects about ophthalmology in that as you are focused on one particular structure, the eye, you understand that the eye is representative of the entire body. It's entire, it's representative of the health of the entire animal. And so just by focusing on the eye alone, you will absolutely miss things. And so you talk to the family and say, hey, this could rep be representative of the overall health. This could be affecting them systemically. And you go back to get another portion of the history. That I think is absolutely essential because let's keep in mind, we already had an initial history. You're finding and developing new information now it warrants going back a second time and getting additional history. I find that piece really critical. And so what was your next step talking with that family? Their next question is, is the obvious one and then sometimes one that you preemptively hit, which is what are you looking for? Uveitis, uh, when we combine retinal detachment, we, we start to tell them, well, you know, Bo's middle-aged, so cancer unfortunately is on the list. There are various cancers that can form in the body and they can spread to the eye. It's called uh, paraneoplasia, which is when the cancer is, it has a primary tumor somewhere else and causes a problem somewhere else in the body. Usually when we say this, the client will say, well, you know, he does have some lumps and bumps, you know, on his skin, on his chest, and, and you know, on his belly. And he's an eight-year-old Labrador. So I typically will say, those aren't really the type of tumors that we're looking for. Those are usually lipomas. Every middle-aged and older dog has one or more. We're looking for stuff that you can't see, stuff that's attached to an intestine, stuff that is attached to a liver or a kidney. Uh, so we say, we're looking for that to see if there's anything on blood work that would point to us of organ dysfunction. We're also looking for a high white cell count to indicate that is there an infection somewhere in the body. And we're looking at platelets to see if the platelets are low. Tick-borne diseases can cause uveitis and retinal detachments. And so a tick bites uh, the dog and transmits uh, bacteria and that can affect the dog overall and especially the eyes. And then we start to also discuss a test called a blastomycosis urine antigen anywhere in the Midwest typically can be affected by a disease called blastomycosis. And this is uh, a fungal disease that is inhaled. It's, it's ubiquitous, it's everywhere in our environment and it's inhaled and most animals will clear it, but occasionally it'll take over and, and that can affect the eyes as well. And that's a fatal condition if it's not caught and treated. And so we always recommend uh, testing the urine for that as well. So that's kind of our battery of tests that we go after initially. Oh my goodness, blastomycosis, really gross and aggressive and lethal fungal organism. Which animals are the most at risk, in your opinion, of contracting blastomycosis? Blastomycosis is mostly found in middle-aged dolichocephalic dogs. Dolichocephalic are long-nosed breeds, such as golden retrievers, Labradors, German shorthair pointers, Whereas a brachycephalic are your smush-nosed dogs that look like they ran too hard into the wall and their face got smushed up like a bulldog, a Boston Terrier, or a pug. Oh, my goodness. So we're looking for just basically the worst of the worst, cancer, tick-borne disease, fungal organisms, and none of those sound good. Some of them are treatable, but none of them sound good. What did you find next, or what was your next step? Blood work was largely unremarkable except for a mildly high white blood cell count. You can run in-house and that can take 
maybe an hour to run, or you can send it out to a laboratory and it's typically back by the next day. The blasto urine test goes to a specific lab and that typically can take three to four days for that to turn around. And in Bo's case, he came back as, as positive for systemic blastomycosis. Oh my goodness, he came back positive for blastomycosis. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hello, this is Caitlin Palmer. You probably know me as the desk wench. You know, the sweet TikTok receptionist who has to deal with the evil Karen Stevens. Well, if you like that, you are going to love my new podcast, Desk Wench Confessions. On my show, I have funny guests who tell me about their own Karens. Plus, we have contests, giveaways, and skits. Trust me, you are going to love it. Check it out on a podcast platform of your choice on Vet Candy Radio. You mentioned all of the trappings of a fungal infection. None of them sounded good, including the fact that it can be fatal, the fact that it can occur in this breed and a dog with who has this nose conformation. All of these are not good. And there are monikers, unfortunately, some real unfortunate monikers they give fungal diseases. They'll call it swamp cancer. Sometimes they'll say that fungal disease is worse than cancer. Uh, all of these are heartbreaking. They're, they sink your heart. What's going through your head as you get this diagnosis? And then what did you tell the family? The first thing that goes through your head is, you know, hey, we got a diagnosis. It's no longer a mystery to us. And so the next step is let's get this family on the phone and offer them options for treatment and let them know what to expect. And, you know, when I call them, I basically say, this isn't the best news, but in Bo's particular case, I think we caught it fairly early. Blastomycosis can cause draining skin lesions and Bo didn't have any of those. It can cause bone lesions where they're, they're limping. Bo didn't have any of those. Uh, it can cause uh, severe coughing as it affects the lungs. Uh, he wasn't coughing and he was, he was still eating. He wasn't anorexic. Um, so I said, hey, look, I think we caught it in a good enough time. And we had already started Bo on some topical treatments for the eye. Uh, we started him on diclofenac, which is a topical non-steroidal and uh, dexamethasone, uh, which is a topical steroidal, which a lot of people, especially in, in vet medicine, orally, you're not supposed to combine steroids and non-steroidals. It can lead to gastric ulcers. And sometimes we'll get questioned about that, but in dogs, in eyes in general, you can double them up without harm. They had said, hey, look, his squinting's already better. His tearing is better. He still isn't eating so well. Uh, so I said, that's because we haven't treated him systemically yet, and this is a disease that's affecting his body. So we got him started on itraconazole, uh, which is an oral medication, an antifungal. Uh, and then what we do is we recheck Bo two weeks from that time. And in two weeks, what we tell the client is, we just want things to be getting better. It's not going to be cured yet. We, we just want to be moving in the right direction, not getting worse. We're not going to pull another urine test yet. We typically wait about four to six weeks before pulling another urine test. They can evaluate the level of quantification that, that's in the urine. And so you treat them until you hit zero. And then gradually over time, we will slowly wean him down on his an topical anti-inflammatories as long as he is looking good. 
Yeah, for sure. And I can tell that your clinical practice and operation day-to-day -day is super smooth because you ran through treatment, prognosis, follow-up, I mean, just seamlessly all in one breath. And I think that that's absolutely fascinating and, and impressive. You start treating for itraconazole. Number one, is itraconazole expensive? So you can get it compounded or name brand. It used to be really expensive. It's not as bad as it used to be, but it certainly isn't the cheapest thing out there. You know, of course, expenses, it's relative. You know, for some people, they, they might be refinancing their house to save their dog. And, you know, if this was Bill Gates, this is like a bag of Skittles. You know, it's all relative, but it's not the cheapest medication out there. And, and if clients ask me about expense, I say, Bo doesn't have cancer. And if he were to go down the line of, say, chemotherapy, you'd probably be paying a lot more for chemotherapy, I think, maybe. I don't know. I'm not an oncologist. Uh, so it's kind of mid-range in terms of money-wise. It's in mid-range in terms of money-wise. And, and this is critically important. The reason I, I bring this up is simply because there are a variety of factors that are happening. There's the diagnosis, there's the unexpected illness, and then there's the medications and the follow-up, and then the expense associated with the healthcare to get your dog feeling better and to get the, and to save their eye. And so you treat with itraconazole, you follow up, and ultimately, how does he do? So Bo actually has a pretty darn full recovery. Wow. His retina in his right eye reattached, which is not uncommon as long as the retina has not torn, uh, which his was not. It was more of what's called a bullous detachment, so it just bubbled forward. So after we were able to clear his blastomycosis, his retina reattached. Um, he regained complete vision as far as we can tell in that right eye. Uh, he has some small cataracts. He has some side effects of the uveitis in his left eye. He has what's called keratic precipitates, which are little dots of cells that got stuck to the inside of his cornea that they'll remain there, but Bo doesn't know it. He can't see them. I'll just find them on, their, on the microscopic exam. And he has what's called a posterior synechia, which is where his iris got stuck down to his lens a little bit, uh, and that won't move. So if the clients are taking pictures of Bo and putting them on social media. His pupils might be different sized, and that's a side effect of his inflammation, but he, he still maintains vision out of his left eye. In full disclosure, all of these words I have heard at some point <laughs> on my education. But as you're talking about them, I'm like, that's right, posterior sneakyo, that's right, aqueous flare. For me, I'm at the edge of my chair. I, I just love hearing you talk about them because they just feel familiar. And so this is great news, and it makes me so happy to hear that. We talk about the word mysterious, and we do use that term kind of tongue-in-cheek. It is kind of interesting that we'll we'll use that, but when we talk about this, there are some actual serious sides to this in that a busy ophthalmologist, how often would they see this? And was that one of your first differentials when looking at this, when you saw it originally? It actually is one of my first differentials. Um, being in the Midwest, we see a lot of this. We probably see maybe four to five cases a week in my practice, and it's missed a lot. It, it's not thought of, it's not evaluated for. Uh, we also see a lot of travelers through the Midwest, you know, people that may be coming from one area of the country, going to another area of the country, and they're not aware of this or, or their veterinarian practices in an area where they don't see this, like New Mexico, they never see this disease. And New Mexico has diseases that we don't see. We have to educate clients and, and other veterinarians as to these are some of the diseases that we see in this area. This is a serious one. So this is one that you want to try to put on or off your differential list immediately. 
This is one of the most interesting and fascinating mysteries that we've uncovered on this podcast because the eye itself can be daunting, it can be intimidating, it can, it's certainly complex. All the differential diagnoses that are involved in the presentation of a fairly mysterious case, and then of course, fungal organisms and their behavior all of that can be tremendously, tremendously illuminating. So I wanted to ask you one last thing before we go, because we are up against the clock here. And that is when we're talking to clients, is there anything that they can do, even to vets too, is there anything that they can do to prevent their dogs from coming in contact with Blasto? Or if there's nothing they can do to prevent it, is there anything they can do in terms of early detection? Yeah, there's really not any way to prevented, I guess. Classically, I guess this organism is found in stale water. So if you, you know, lived on a, on a farm or acreage and, you know, there's puddles and the Labrador, your dogs like to go tearing through it and getting muddy, that that potentially could be where it's living. Uh, but we see it out of city dogs too. It, it doesn't have to just be that. And it is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And, you know, like we were saying it, most dogs will get breathe it in and get rid of it without a problem. And then there's some dogs that whether they're immunocompromised or they, no one knows, it sets up shop just like a common cold does for us as humans. Some of us get it and some of us don't. You know, one of the reasons that I do like to be efficient and do see a fair amount of cases is these things shouldn't be sat on. Um, you shouldn't have to deal with a waiting list when it comes to seeing an ophthalmologist. It should be I need to get my dog in and we're going to get you in because it is an eyeball. It's a functional organ. You can't bring it back when you lose it. Uh, if it's gone, it's gone. And so I wouldn't wait more than two days on an, on an eye problem, three days. From a general practitioner standpoint, I'd say if in your gut you feel like you don't know what's going on, it probably would be in your best interest to refer the case so that you can get to the bottom of it. And worse comes to worse, better safe than sorry squinting dog with some conjunctivitis, if it comes back allergic conjunctivitis and not blastomycosis, fantastic. That's great. But worst case scenario is you, you miss something that, that's really serious and it can, can affect the life of the patient. Those are all excellent pearls of wisdom. Thank you for dropping those pearls of wisdom. We really appreciate it. Dr. Horsley, this was absolutely illuminating, fascinating, and most importantly, it was captivating. It had me at the edge of my chair. It just brought back so many memories of learning ophthalmology, but most importantly, it brought back memories of how important it is to go through in a systematic way of diagnostics history and coming up with a, a differential diagnosis plan of action. I, I loved it. Please let us know how they can hear more from you or where they can find you on socials, Dr. Hoysler. Well, you can certainly find me in, uh, on Vet Candy. Um, I work with them quite a bit. They are excellent people and are really game changers in vet medicine, social media. So a lot of great content there. My personal stuff is Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook is Animal Eye Institute. So you can find my personal pages there. Animal Eye Institute, personal pages. Where are you practicing right now? I'm in uh, Dayton, Ohio, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Florence, Kentucky. All those places, Dayton, Ohio, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Florence, Kentucky. Thank you so much. If we do a round two, would you be willing to come back? A hundred percent. I'd love to. Fantastic. Thanks again, Dr. Hoistler. You and I, we will talk soon. My pleasure. Thank you. There you have it, folks. Dr. Hoistler just broke down to us. Tremendously sort of mysterious, but then we were taking different turns and twists as we're trying to figure out what's going on with Bo's eye. He dropped a lot of gems during this conversation. Most importantly, 
don't wait. That is one thing that we can all agree on is probably one of the most important factors that help to save Bo's eye, don't wait. And of course, understanding common things occur commonly. And so if you know you live in an area that is endemic to blastomycosis, it just makes sense to keep it on your differential list. That was just another incredible episode of Bet Mysteries. Thank you so much for joining us. Please stay tuned for more distinguished and illustrious guests. Remember, there's nothing stronger than the human-animal bond. So please take care of your pets and each other. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. It's Vet Candy Radio.